Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. There are a tremendous amount of school districts and states across the country that have either no protection for trans students or in some few cases bar protection. There are state legislatures which to this day are still trying to pursue bills that prevent anti-discrimination provisions in schools that extend to trans students. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Dhruv. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Andrew speaks with Paul D. Castillo, who is counsel and students' rights strategist at the South Central Regional Office of Lambda Legal in Dallas. On this edition, Andrew and Paul discuss Title IX, which prohibits discrimination based on sex and education, and how it applies to discrimination against transgender students. This is the second part of a two-part series. Both parts are available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Paul Castillo, welcome back to Outcasting. Good to be back. When we left off last time, you were saying that there's case law in some areas of the country that protects the rights of trans students and that can't be wiped out by pronouncements by the federal government. But the Trump administration has been stacking courts with conservative judges. Could that potentially in the future have an effect on how Title IX is interpreted? I think the fact that numerous judges have been confirmed under the Trump administration has a tremendous effect about future cases and what might happen with regard to Title IX. Not only have judges been appointed in district courts that hear the cases in the first instance, there are many appellate courts who have received new judges and and sort of shifted in composition based on the appointments of the Trump administration. There could be cases that come before these courts with these new judges that could have an effect, although it's tempered by the fact that there are already existing cases which are already working their way up through the court system. And should this issue come before the United States Supreme Court in the near future, those judges would have to follow any sort of binding law that is decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Covering anti-trans discrimination was clearly not the original intent for Title IX. So do most legal experts believe that interpretation of a law should be based on original intent or not? When you're talking about a law like Title IX or any other federal civil rights statutes that aims to protect individuals from discrimination, courts apply basically an expansive view of federal civil rights law that indicates that it may not have been the original intent, but if it furthers the essence of the law. Remember, we go back to the fact that part of the reason Title IX was enacted was to fight against stereotypes of women. And so sex stereotyping has always been a part of sort of the core reason that Title IX was enacted. So I think that moving forward, 
it's completely within the sort of parameters of the court to view civil rights laws expansively, to further its purpose, and to make sure that we're protecting individuals about the laws that are covered under Title IX. If you remember, nobody ever thought that sexual harassment was covered under Title IX, and yet we know to this day that there's no question that harassment based on a person's sex also constitutes discrimination. So it's not necessarily the original intent, but rather the purposes of the law which generally prevail in courts. Can you give some examples of laws that states have enacted protecting trans students? There are an assortment of states that have moved forward with their own laws that focus on protecting trans students uh, across the country, although not as many as we would like to see. Laws that prohibit discrimination in schools on the basis of both sexual orientation and gender identity, if you count them, there are about 14 states in the District of Columbia, each with their own scope of how far that extends and what sort of remedy or process you would go to to make a complaint. So we certainly aren't at a place where um, the states that have passed laws are consistent sort of with the purposes that, that prohibit all forms of sex discrimination that would be covered under Title IX. So do these laws cover the same territory as Title IX or do they cover additional things? Some are more expansive. Some are not quite as expansive. Again, depending upon sort of the complaint mechanism, the investigation mechanism, and the enforcement mechanism, it varies by state. There are many states that have prescriptive laws that sort of outline areas of which a school is required to protect transgender students. Other laws are a bit more ambiguous or broad, but there are still quite a majority of states that do not have state laws that protect on the basis of gender identity or uh, uh, target, for example, prohibiting discrimination, bullying and harassment uh, of transgender students. So what examples are there of state policies that aren't so friendly to trans students? There are a tremendous amount of school districts and states across the country, particularly in rural areas, that have either no protection for trans students or, in some few cases, bar protection for trans students. And so we see that prevalent, particularly in the South, in Texas, Mississippi, Alabama. There are state legislatures which to this day are still trying to pursue bills that prevent anti-discrimination provisions in schools that extend to trans students. So if a state bars protection of trans students, doesn't that contradict with Title IX? That's absolutely true. That doesn't stop state legislatures from trying. No state could pass a law that contradicts the authority of any sort of federal law, uh, either the Constitution or Title IX itself. So, for example, it would be impermissible for a state to say you have no protections under Title IX or, or explicitly contradict Title IX with respect to 
trans students, yet we still have states in many parts of the country who try for political reasons to put these type of discriminatory bills forward. So would you say that there is uncertainty or not about the applicability of Title IX to anti-trans discrimination? I think it depends on where you live. It's quite clear that in, for example, states within what's called the Seventh Circuit, which covers Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, that circuit has made clear in a case involving a trans student, Ash Whitaker, that the law does cover and protect trans students. However, if you were to go to another part of the country, for example, the Fifth Circuit, which covers, you know, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, an appellate court has not decided that case. It's still, you know, the laws are still percolating in many parts of the country, and a lot of school districts are in a wait-and-see mode for the most part in the best case. In the worst case, they are trying to avoid following the law whenever possible until the Supreme Court makes a decision. So in these areas where there is more uncertainty, how are most educational institutions responding to that uncertainty? There are a number of school districts all across the country in rural and urban areas that have passed affirming policies, whether or not they are required to by law. They see the benefit of having an inclusive and non-discriminatory environment at schools. They see the benefit for the entire campus and community in which they reside. And so they have taken it upon themselves to send a message to the school community that everybody is welcome. And they have affirmatively sought the affirming policies that are inclusive of transgender students and uh, implemented them in their own district. Are there differing responses among colleges versus K-12 schools? I think there is certainly, uh, they're the same in terms of the amount of confusion with respect to colleges and universities. Certainly colleges have some other considerations that might not be applicable in primary or secondary school setting. For example, there are college dorms and housing that they have to deal with. But I think across the board, um, all schools would be well advised, whether you're at the high school level or uh, university level or elementary level, for that matter, to make sure that you follow Title IX And the best place to look in order to avoid sort of a lawsuit would be to the now rescinded Dear Colleague letter for a starting place of how to implement affirming policies. So in areas where there is more uncertainty, when schools have Title IX policies that include gender identity protections, are those policies legally binding? With respect to policies that are included either at the primary, secondary, or post-secondary level, schools that have policies inclusive of transgender people usually abide by those policies and have a a mechanism to sort of file a complaint to investigate those. And those campuses are generally committed to an inclusive environment and so follow through. But Title IX 
and state discrimination laws are not the sole source of the laws for transgender students. You often see trans students raised along with Title IX in public education institutions claims of equal protection of the law under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So there are certainly other areas even where a student may have a, a situation where a school's not following their own policy. But I would guess that a court that wouldn't interpret Title IX to include trans protections would be also unlikely to say, you know, protect a trans student's equal protection, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good guess, although we have seen courts make a decision with respect to equal protection, but not necessarily go as far as saying, you know, Title IX extends as broadly as some other courts would go. So we have seen split decisions. So it's not always the case that a judge may find protections in the Constitution and not find the protections in Title IX or vice versa. That's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. It certainly is. Um, You know, and I think part of the reason that that may be the case is because it was based on this early sort of uh, dear colleague letter and sort of the concept in courts of how much deference to give a federal agency in its sort of interpretation of its own law. We certainly have a lot more case law in the area of the Constitution and what it means to have equal protection under the law with the basis of sex um, in in workplace and other contexts. So it's not common. It's certainly not surprising that a court could find different ways based on the source of the law. That makes sense. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Andrew is talking with Paul D. Castillo of Lambda Legal on Title IX and anti-transgender discrimination. So can you tell us about the recent court case with Gavin Grimm? Gavin Grimm had filed a lawsuit against the school back when he was in high school seeking access to the restroom consistent with his gender identity. This was filed at a time when immediately before the Dear Colleague letter came out by the Office for Civil Rights, and uh, it certainly has been years of litigation that Gavin Grimm had to undergo until it finally reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 2017. Unfortunately, the case was dismissed and remanded back to the district court because the decisions thus far in favor of Gavin Grimm or decisions by the appellate court relied on the Dear Colleague letter. Now, with the Dear Colleague letter rescinded, the question for the Supreme Court was whether or not Title IX itself, based on the statutory language, extended protections based on either a sex stereotyping theory or um, extended coverage based on a, a student's gender identity. But that question wasn't dealt with at the, at the courts below. So we have Gavin Grimm returning to square one with his challenge against his school, even though he's since graduated. But certainly 
could find the effects of the school because of his education records and, and his high school uh, transcripts that still reflect the sex that he was assigned at at birth. And so he still encounters these challenges in the courts and the federal system. So how did the previous rulings rely on the Dear Colleague letter if the Dear Colleague letter didn't really have legal authority? The courts, when they look at the law, if it is indeed ambiguous, as the schools argue, then they go to the regulations that clarify what the law means. And if the regulations themselves are ambiguous, then um, oftentimes the agency that enforces the law is charged with interpreting what do its regulations mean. And so a Dear Colleague letter was part of you know Department of Education's interpretation of a regulation. Um, there's a regulation that says that schools may but are not required to, but they may have different facilities for males than for females uh, students. And so a question arose in the context of litigation for access to facilities is what does that regulation mean? Does that regulation means that schools are required to separate students based on sex? Uh, and how does that apply to transgender students? And so the Supreme Court was going to evaluate what sort of weight do we give to the Department of Education as an agency to make that decision to interpret what its own regulation and what the statute means. But it was certainly a moot point as a result of the rescission. So what was the ultimate ruling in the Gavin Grimm case? The case um, and the the wins that Gavin had achieved thus far were removed. It was vacated. And so Gavin is essentially starting at a blank slate. However, um, ever since Gavin's case has made you know national news, many other trans students' cases have percolated in the court and have received favorable decisions with the interpretation of Title IX. Lambda Legal has a current case that was the first trial in the country involving a transgender student, which was in Florida. And our client had sued his school because they had barred him from using the men's restroom, even though he had done so for several weeks. We had a trial in December of 2017. The court had decided that the school district, who had barred Drew Adams from the restroom, had violated both the Equal Protection Clause and Title IX. Unfortunately, the school is appealing that decision. And so we are at the Court of Appeals, and we are continuing to fight for Drew's right to access facilities consistent with who he is. So in general, if a trans person brings a discrimination case to court, how likely is the judge to interpret Title IX as covering anti-trans discrimination? I think there is strong legal authority for judges to interpret 
Title IX in the same way that the Office for Civil Rights did back when they issued the Dear Colleague letter in 2016. I think there's significant authority already for a judge to conclude that Title IX bars discrimination based on a transgender person who is transitioning based on their gender identity or trans status or as a matter of sex stereotypes. And so I think that's the correct conclusion and correct interpretation of Title IX. Uh, We continue to see these wins pile up in court, but until the Supreme Court makes clear, we have school districts that continue to refuse to follow the law. What are the drawbacks of having these positive rulings in lower courts rather than the Supreme Court? It's certainly a significant effect for trans students who have to deal on a daily basis with discrimination at their schools where schools are refusing to include trans students in non-discrimination policies. It certainly takes time for litigation to percolate through the courts. So if you're not living within the sort of the state's Uh, where a court case has reached the appellate level, it can be frustrating. And and certainly trans students, especially trans students who aren't in affirming homes, may not have the ability to go into court to see their rights vindicated. And, And so in the meantime, trans students continue to suffer harassment and bullying and discrimination by students and and even faculty and staff in some cases where there are no affirming policies that are clear in the district. So just for speculation, how do you think that the Supreme Court most likely would have ruled if they had heard the Gavin Grimm case last year? It's uh, hard to say, either with hindsight or certainly with a different composition of the court as it exists today, I think Justice Kennedy would find, as he did in many of the other cases that were before him in the cases of sexual orientation, that laws that discriminate on the basis of sex, and particularly laws where there could be animus or discrimination against a targeted group of people, I think there was a good chance that uh, the decision would have come out favorable. So what do you expect to be the future of this issue? It's unclear. We have uh, seen a number of cases uh, across the country brought by the parents of cisgender students who are claiming violations of Title IX and constitutional laws regarding the fact that they have to share a restroom, for example, with a trans student, or that the mere presence of a trans student somehow impacts their privacy, even though they have access, just as every other student, to single-user restrooms. So that case, you know, could be heading to the Supreme Court. They've been asked to take a look at that issue. And that certainly will have implications with respect to sort of the flip side of the coin with respect to trans students' rights under Title IX. We've also seen a number of cases that have recently been filed by school teachers and administrators who refuse to follow affirming policies asserting 
uh, religion as a basis for their discrimination that have just started in the courts. I think that um, until either the Supreme Court acts, certainly it's in the prerogative of Congress to act and make explicit that Title IX or perhaps some other law does bar discrimination based on trans status or based on gender identity. So it still remains unclear when we'll have a sort of full and final decision about the scope of Title IX until the Supreme Court uh, speaks or Congress acts. So if and when there is that full and final decision, will that fully resolve the issue or can that only be done with new legislation? Well, you know, it depends on what the outcome is. Um, And so there are always ways that Congress can go back and change the meaning of a law based on passing an additional statute or explicitly overruling what the Supreme Court has said. Although the case is very different um, when you're talking about uh, constitutional rights. Uh, subsequent Congress, if they don't like the outcome of the interpretation of the Supreme Court, they have no ability, absent sort of a constitutional amendment, to change what the Supreme Court has said about the U.S. Constitution. And certainly, you know, constitutional amendments are far more difficult and onerous than just enacting a new law. So I think that, you know, when it comes to Title IX, regardless of the outcome, a new Congress can come back and make changes that sees fit. So that decision would be a lot better if it relied on equal protection in the Constitution rather than Title IX, correct? That is correct. Certainly, you know, the Constitution cannot easily be changed. And so there's a decision uh, based on equal protection that uh, the law extends to um, transgender students in sort of a, a school environment. And we've seen courts across the country uh, say that equal protection protects trans students as a, ca- as a class. We see that not only in workplace uh, cases and, and certainly in the military, as we've seen with respect to the current transgender ban uh, for military service. So there's certainly a greater uh, protection that is found in equal protection is certainly more robust given the, the existing case law that's out there today. Finally, what do you think are the best non-legal ways to promote the rights of trans students? I think it's important to, to know that um, despite the confusion about what Title IX means, it's important for uh, trans students and their parents to attempt to work with schools or schools that don't already have affirming policies to advocate in their communities that school boards and school districts pass affirming policies within their communities and to also seek the assistance of other organizations like Lambda Legal who are committed to achieving equal opportunities for trans people and trans students in schools specifically. Um, There are helplines that that we have and, and certainly resources that organizations like Lambda Legal and others can provide with respect to advocating for your rights. 
Paul Di Castillo, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This has been the second part of a two-part series. You can listen to both parts on our website, outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Andrew, Alex, Amelie, Dante, Lucas, and me, Dhruv. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Drew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.